0: 1972, the retired vicar of Chiddick in the west county of Dorset, England, apparently came to Loch Ness in the Scottish Highlands to exorcise the Loch Ness Monster. Reverend Donald Omand a doctor of philosophy and a man rather bizarrely said to have been held in particular high esteem by circus people throughout Europe for his ability to spiritually de potentially dangerous places such as big tops and wild animals, according to paranormal researcher Ted Holliday, where the reverend had arrived at Loch Ness to rid the lake of the infamous giant the monster and the BBC came along to record it on film for posterity. On the shores of the lake, the vicar, dressed in his ecclesiastical robes, entered a small boat alone and rowed out to the middle of the cold water of Loch Ness. Once he reached a spot in the middle of the lake, the vicar promptly stood up in the rowing boat and began his exorcism. Let devil worship and all nefarious magic cease, he said in a loud, authoritative voice. The BBC reporter commentates while he's doing this. It's a strange mission, indeed, that's brought the Reverend Omand on a 700-mile journey from his West Country home to the shores of Loch Ness. Dr Omand just retired as vicar of Chidwick, and he has an appointment with the monster. It's a coming together the 71-year-old Doctor of Philosophy doesn't expect Nessie to particularly enjoy because Dr. Omand is here to get the monster to change its ways. Many men would shrink from such an assignment. After all, monsters might be expected to give short shrift to elderly vicars who come along interfering in their business. However, Dr. Omand, his canonicals fanned by the breeze, seems to have no qualms as he heads for the centre of the lock. It's there he will perform the ceremony, which he confidently expects will mark the end of a million years of monstrous behaviour. The vicar, out in the rowboat, says, I adjure thee, thou ancient serpent, by the judge of the quick and the dead, by him who made thee, in their world, that no more in manifestations of prehistoric demons, which henceforth shall bring no sorrow to the children of men says the BBC reporter. The vicar's theory is that this prehistoric beast that somehow slipped through the evolutionary net and lived on in the vast depths of the loch, he maintains that Nessie is an apparition, a spirit and an evil one at that. So much so that it's having a bad effect on the locals, driving them to drink, foul tempers and black magic. It's a ceremony the vicar has performed on many occasions in other haunted spots. And now, Dr. Armand is exercising Loch Ness of the evil spirit of the monster. The vicar continues. Depart to the place appointed them, there to remain forever. The vicar is standing precariously in the rowing boat. By the power entrusted to the unworthy servant, the highland law may be delivered. Phantasms. Be gone, thou hideous demon. Well, with the exorcism now complete, the vicar sits back down in the rowing boat and rows back to shore where the BBC correspondent is waiting. When the reporter asks him, what does he think the monster is? He replies, I think it is something that thousands or millions of years ago was in this place. I think it was possibly what we knew in those days as a dragon, which really, of course, is the devil. It means that, says the vicar. And he adds, you may not know that in Sweden there is a lake that was just as famous as Loch Ness for its monster. I've been there. And I've also seen it in a fjord in the north of Norway. And in both places, I have found that it has an injurious effect upon people. People who see it, people who live near it, people particularly who go searching for it. I've known one very bad case of turning to drugs, numerous cases of alcoholism. And I have known marriages broken in the most unexpected ways. Marriages that had stood the test of time broke after this. It seems a terrific coincidence that these things should have happened in people who are closely associated with the spectre of the monster, or whatever we like to call it, said the vicar. Of his Loch Ness monster exorcism, he says, I believe it is a success, as through my Highland mother I get a certain sense of things, and when I performed the exorcism, I had that feeling of weakness which invariably goes with success in exorcisms. It would seem that this exorcism, filmed by the BBC, was in fact a reenactment, or rather a repeat, which it appears was actually carried out a couple of days earlier in the presence of paranormal researcher Ted Holliday and a captain called A. Artus a serving artillery officer. Researcher Ted Holliday himself had become fascinated by the earliest reports of the Loch Ness Monster back in the 1930s, and he was so captivated by them that he would go on to devote the rest of his life to investigating Nessie as a member of the Loch Ness Investigation Bureau. He spent hundreds of hours at the Loch attempting to spot the monster and he claimed to have had four separate sightings of it. He also said, rather cryptically, I was involved in a peculiar incident that could easily have drowned two of us in the lock. I'm not sure what happened in that incident. Well, a little like Reverend Omand, Holiday also believed in dragons, and he even believed there could be a relationship between ancient dragons and the modern UFO phenomena. Well, at their first exorcism with Holliday and Reverend Amand, prior to the BBC's arrival, Holliday describes how a chill wind blew up Loch Ness and cast two-foot waves onto the beach. Amand asked us to kneel one by one for a protective ceremony. This consisted of a brief benediction, followed by the application of holy water in the form of a cross to the foreheads of the participants. Then the Reverend rowed them all out to the centre of the lake. There, above the seven hundred foot depths of the Loch, Holiday says, I expected the appearance of the monster, or something much worse, coming up under the boat. What could be worse than the monster itself? Well, anyway, that did not happen, fortunately for them, but Holiday also claims to have had some other very strange incidents happen to him at Loch Ness after the exorcism and the final incident that happened to him seems rather sinisterly to have been an omen to his subsequent sudden death which happened shortly after his final encounter with something not of this world apparently seemed to be the climax of events leading up to his death the strange sequence of events began on saturday the 2nd of june 1973 when Holiday accompanied Reverend Domand to the exorcism at the Loch, Three days after the exorcism ceremony, according to both Ted Holiday's own book, The Goblin Universe, and a blog called Loch Ness Monster Blog, Holiday was at the farmhouse of his friends, Mr. Curry, a wing commander, and his wife, Mrs. Curry. It was evening time and the group was sitting in the lounge chatting, when suddenly the wind outside whipped into a frenzy, so extreme that it felt as though a tornado was assaulting the farmhouse with violent lashings, crashing, thumps, and bangs. Britain does not really ever have anything like tornadoes and hurricanes, and yet this is what it was. The noise was deafening and the violence of the wind terrifying. Holiday said there was a tremendous rushing sound outside, and what looked like a whirl mass of dark smoke appeared. Inside the house, A series of heavy thuds shook the walls and for an instant I thought the corner of the house was collapsing. A rose bush outside the window seemed to be trying to tear itself out of the ground. Accompanied by this extreme phenomenon, Ted also claimed he saw a pyramid-shaped column of bluish smoke, the height of which he estimated to be eight feet and revolving in a frenzy, he said, until a few seconds later... It abruptly ended. The account of Mrs. Winifred Carey, the owner of the farmhouse, was that suddenly there were terrific crashes just outside the window by the front door, as if something was hurling itself at the door. I got the impression there was something at the window, although I didn't see exactly what it was. I saw a beam of white light that shot across the room from the window on my left. I said to my husband, What was that? He said, I don't know what you're talking about. I never heard a thing. The beam of bright white light seemed to be covering Ted Holliday's forehead. It was shining on his forehead and the origin of the light was coming from outside the window he was sitting close to. He said the area where the light became visible to Mrs. Carey was where the holy water had been applied during the protective rite. He means the exorcism of Loch Ness Monster. Incredibly strangely though, Although Mrs Carey and Ted had felt themselves to be in this whirling vortex of the most tremendously violent storm, the like of which they'd never experienced, Mrs Carey's husband Basil said he heard, saw and felt none of it. Well, the following night, Holiday said, there was a distinct knocking on the door for which no cause could be found. But it didn't end there, much in shock from the strangeness of the last couple of nights. The next morning it got even weirder. Holiday recalls in his book The Goblin Universe, which was actually published after his death, his untimely death. He says, Before breakfast, I decided to step to the caravan to collect some oddments for my suitcase. As I turned the corner of the house, I stopped involuntarily. Across the grass at the top of the slope, leading down to Loch Ness, at which the caravan was, stood a figure. It was a man dressed entirely in black. Unlike other walkers who sometimes pause along here to admire the panorama of Loch Ness, this one had his back to the loch and was staring at me, fixedly, as soon as I turned the corner. Well, Ted didn't know quite what to make of this. He said, to all appearances, he was waiting for me. We were about 30 yards apart and, for several seconds, I just stared back, wondering, Who the hell this was? I felt a strange sensation of malevolence, cold, passionless. I walked forward warily, never taking my eyes off the figure. He was about six feet tall and appeared to be dressed in black. He wore a helmet and gloves and was masked, even the nose, mouth and chin. His eyes were covered in goggles, but on closer approach... I could not detect eyes behind the lenses. The figure remained motionless as I approached. It didn't speak, and I could hear no breathing. It was as though it wasn't human. He says, I drew level and hesitated, uncertain what to do next, then walked past at a range of about a yard. I stopped a few feet beyond him and gazed down for perhaps ten seconds. Something in the figure seemed abnormal, and I felt the need to test whether it was real. So he came up with the idea of thinking, I'll pretend to stumble, and then I can accidentally bump into it. So he said, I was turning my head, and I heard a curious whispering sound. And the figure had entirely vanished, as though instantaneously. He said in two steps I was on the road, there was about half a mile of empty wide road visible to the right, and about 100 yards to the left. No living person could have gotten out so quick. Yet he had gone. I told no one about this for months, as it seemed logically impossible. Well, Holiday suffered a heart attack at the lock a year later, very near the exact spot he had encountered this darkly dressed, eyeless and breathless stranger. And unfortunately another heart attack then finished him off. Not long after Holiday's death, The co-author of Holliday's book, another researcher called Randall Pugh, destroyed the manuscript he was working on for his own latest book and walked away from the subject entirely, declaring it was too frightening to talk about, and he refused to say any more than that.